suffering is not just for the wicked. If you are foolish and in your folly, you will suffer. If someone else is foolish, someone else is folly, especially if you're on the 401, you will suffer. Uh, you suffer for no reason. And oftentimes you think you're suffering unfairly and unjustly. So what do we do with this problem of pain and of suffering? What answers do you have when you get a call in the night saying that the mother's just called saying that his, her teenage daughter is pregnant, unwed teenage daughter is pregnant? What, what, what do you do when you hear that the sons met with an accident? What do you do when a, a young Christian calls to say a husband's leaving her just because she is following Christ? What do you do when a dear sister calls in and says, her mother says, there's no more hope, it's time to go, God's not answering? What do you do? Any kind of answer, any kind of answer is not sufficient. It feels like it's a brick being thrown at you, especially when you need a bomb. No uh, type of comfort is enough, and, and it seems like we're getting explanation, not consolation. And the kind of response that we get at this time can be, in two ways. One is we either tend to moralize or we tend to minimize. It's the kind of answer that we get or the kind of answer that we give. We moralize or we minimize. We moralize by saying that, oh, you must have done something wrong and therefore you're suffering. You might say, oh, your son's getting into trouble with the police because you didn't bring him up right. Uh, we think of a God who's transactional. You did this, and therefore that happened. And I remember many years ago, I think it was probably in Sunday school, I'm not sure, that somebody helped me realize. He was talking about, like, if you have stolen your, your classmate's pencil, and as you get out, if a cyclist goes over your toe, you tend to think, oh, because I stole... God's not punished me because a cyclist went on my, over my toe. But the Bible says, for stealing, punishment is death. God is not transactional. He is not saying, okay, this happened, and so that's, and that is happening. We tend to moralize. Or we tend to minimize. They say, oh, it's part of life. And, and, and we don't want them to feel pain or be in pain, and so we deny pain. We say, um, you know, God's allowing this for you because you're, you're, you're strong in your faith. And I say to myself, so it's my fault. I'd rather be weak in my faith rather than have my son suffer or my daughter suffer. It's my fault if you say God is not going to give you more than you can bear. That it's my fault that I'm strong. I don't want to be strong. Well, that's unbiblical anyway. So, I mean, God does give you more than you can bear because if he doesn't give you more than you, you can bear, then you don't need God. 
You can bear it in your own self. And so, so any of these answers that we get when we deal with suffering is insufficient. It's inadequate. And I think it's very important, therefore, to turn back to God's word. And what does the Bible really say about suffering and pain? And so over the next three weeks, this is what we want to do, God willing. We want to look at this doctrine of suffering. We look at three things. We want to begin today by looking at this aspect of the sovereignty of God. We want to begin with God. What, what, what is he in this whole equation? What is he all about? So the sovereignty of God is what we want to look at today. Then tomorrow, next Sunday, sorry, we want to look at the purpose of God in suffering. And then we want to look at the grace of God in suffering. All right, so let's just pray before we start. Father, we, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We know that it's your word. I am totally enabled to present this, Lord, in a coherent way. But you, O oh God, through your spirit, you're the teacher, you're the comforter. Would you speak into our hearts? Would, would the words, Lord, which is alive and active, find its word, uh, space, spot in our hearts? We thank you. We'll love you for answering our prayers in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. So before I explain or get into what this idea of um, sovereignty of God is, I want to put that into context. I want to answer two questions. One is, what is the cause of suffering? What causes suffering? And you were to say, if, 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 you know, anybody were to ask, walking down the street and say, hey, where's the suffering from? You might say, God, because he's in control. He's the mighty God. He can do what he, whatever he wants, so it's God. Some people may not say that, but in their response, they act as if it's God, and so they react to it. And, and so what they say is, oh, if there is God, there would, no, there would be no pain, so there must not be God. So you deny God. You say there's no God right? If I take away God from the equation, as the atheists do, all you have done is, is removed God, but you have not solved the problem of suffering. The suffering issue is still there. The problem of evil is still there. So taking away God is not going to help us. Some others would say probably God is not fully able to deal with this. They may not again express it as entirely as that, but that's the essence with which they speak. Uh, Harold Kutchner, in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, I'm not sure whether you've heard of that title. So he lost his son at 14 to progeria. Progeria is a disease where your body ages much faster. And so by the time he was 14, he looked like an old man, he died. And he wrote this book, when bad things happen to good people. And he says, as I was going through the suffering, I started to read the book of Job. And having read the book of Job, he came across three conclusions. He said, A, God is powerful. B, God is good. C, Job may not be good after all. And then he says, only two of these three things can ever be true. Not all three at the same time. If God is powerful and God is good, then Job may have not been good. Therefore, he suffered. But if you say Job is good, then God must be powerful but not good because he allowed him to suffer. Or if God is, Job is good and God is good, he is not powerful enough to prevent that suffering. That's the conclusion he came up with. See, Job 
in between, he had this idea. He knew that, God, you, are, you can do what you want, and yet, why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you telling me why? And God, he has this back and forth with God as if to say, God, if I had a mediator, I could come and tell you I have not done anything wrong to deserve this. He was, in fact, at that point, without verbalizing it, saying that God may not be good after all. Harold Kirchner decided that God is not powerful. There are things beyond his control that he is not able to do. He is good. He gives good things to us, but there are certain things outside of, outside of his control. The inability of man. But I think I want to say the, what the Bible insists is if you will turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 onwards. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. We looked at, looked at it this morning. We saw what, what happened is that God had given man and woman a choice, and they chose for themselves against the will of God, and there are consequences to it. And so as God proclaims the consequence, this is what he says. He says, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, that is suffering, it shall bring for you. And you shall eat the plant of the seed. By the sweat of your face, that is hard labor and toil, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, which is death, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Bible is saying suffering is not because God is either powerless or unloving. It's a result of sin. We are not victims of a capricious God. We are not victims of a God who willy-nilly decides to do what he wants to do because Bible insists that God is good, James chapter 1, verse 17, and God does everything. He's made everything good, which is Genesis chapter 1, verse 25. And if at all we need a solution, God must be the solution. That is where I want us to lead, uh, to be led to, to find solace in God. But the second thing I want to bring to our understanding is what does it mean by the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God. We speak about the sovereignty of God, which is what essentially we want to understand today. But what is the sovereignty of God? And why I want us to begin with the sovereignty of God is because if you want to understand the issue of problem, we must see it from the vantage of God. And so what is sovereignty? Sovereignty means that he rules over all things. He has power over everything. Psalm 103 verse 19 says he is powerful in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He, is, he rules over all. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says he is in control over all things. He is sovereign over all. Nothing happens if he does not say so or allow so. That's what sovereignty of God is. And that all things are either caused by him or permitted by him. But I want us to understand something else about sovereignty. I want us to understand about sovereignty that if God is sovereign, we don't fully understand him. He is, a, he is an omniscient God, omniscient God. The omniscience of God tells me that I cannot fully understand who God is. Otherwise, I would be omniscient. I would understand everything about God. And the sovereignty of God is saying, 
to me that I have not the right nor the capacity to understand who God is in this, in, in this entirety. So Brenity of God is saying, I have the right to not tell you what I'm doing or why I'm doing. That's the sovereignty of God. But what I'm thrilled about is not because I have not understood the why. He doesn't tell me the why, just as we as parents sometimes don't tell our children the why because they don't fully understand, but they are able to see the benefit of that decision. And likewise here, I want to draw your attention to the benefit of the sovereignty of God. I want to bring you down to two things. One is the grace and the uh, faithfulness of God, the sovereign grace and sovereign faithfulness of God. The two things that we can benefit by God's sovereignty. This is the question we tend to ask when we talk about grace. I want to, I want to just spend some time talking about grace. The, um, <clears throat> the question we tend to ask is, why do we suffer? Is anybody here who's not asked that question? I mean, really? Anybody? We all ask that question. Why me? Why me? The Bible is directing our attention to this question. It says not why me, but why we have not been destroyed. We should have been destroyed, but we have not been destroyed. We should have been killed. We should have died, but we have not. The better question to ask is how come I'm still living? And knowing that God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy chapter 424, knowing that God's eye cannot look at evil, it's so pure that it cannot look at evil and cannot tolerate wrongdoing, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. And yet we read, it's because of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed, the Lamentations chapter 3, 23, forbearance because of God's forbearance that we are not destroyed, Romans 2, chapter 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it's the grace of God whereby we are saved. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Grace, sovereign grace, that I, not, I never fully understand. I've shared this many times. A friend of mine, and when we were in the Middle East, had a, his four-year daughter at that time, much, much older right now, uh, came to him once. He asked him, like, uh, Papa, why, why did Jesus die for us? And he started to answer theological answers as to why Jesus died for our sins. And then he stopped and said, I can't answer. I, cannot, I, I don't have an answer as to why Jesus would die for us. And that is grace. My brothers and sisters, you know why the sovereign grace is so beautiful? It's because it's through suffering of Jesus Christ that we have salvation. The very fact of, self, of suffering that we're talking about, it's because he suffered who did not need to suffer. It's because he suffered that death is put to death. It's because he suffered that the devil is destroyed. It's because he suffered there is going to come a time when I'll be with him where there'll be no suffering, no more pain. Sovereign grace. He presents grace to us today so that your eternal suffering is first taken care of. Which is more radic radically more important to me and to you than anything. In 
we read, right, in Corinthians, we read that this momentary light affliction is nothing compared to the weight of glory that awaits us. Nothing. And so it's only in the Christian faith that we are radically confronted with a kind of suffering that saves us from suffering. The God who says he's going to be our solace for suffering has the right because he suffered for me. And so when I go through suffering, my question is not why me, my question is why him? My attention is directed not to myself, that when I suffer in this little way, I can look to the cross and I can behold the glory of the one who came down loving me and died for me, suffered on the cross. That by his suffering of death, he would be made my perfect savior. And so I turn to him and ask, why him. But secondly, I want to talk to us about this God is sovereign in his faithfulness. And I want to draw your attention to two passages to be able to help, uh, help us with this. So if you will turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50, verses 9, 19 and 20. Now, this is the story of Joseph. Joseph is the uh, favored son of the father in total Jacob had 12 sons, and, and Joseph is given the multicolored uh, robe as if to show that he is the favored one. He's, he is like the, the Indian woman in that Indian perfect, um, you know, the, the sari that they go into this wedding sometimes, like I'm the most colorful person, right? Because everybody else is, uh, there's no multicolor. They, they, they have just a single color. It's like Henry Ford who would say, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. So he really stood out. And then on top of that, he has two dreams which, which indicated that the family is going to, uh, to worship him and he's going to be a ruler over them. And so the brothers are jealous. The brothers are upset. And they are, when they got an occasion, they tried to sell him off and, and they sell him off to the slave traders who take him to Egypt. And there he is forgotten, grieved by the father and forgotten by the brothers. But God would have it that he raises through many pain and suffering, brings him to the second in command, and very soon there's a famine. And when the famine comes in, the brothers have nowhere to go. They have to go to Egypt, and they don't realize that their long-forgotten-for-dead brother is the one who is controlling the, the food supply. But thankfully, there's reunion, and the family moves to Egypt. Now the father dies. The brothers are, oh, I think he's going to come for our pound of flesh. There's going to be retribution. Joseph's going to do something. And so they are like upset. And this is what Joseph says to them. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? For as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, it's one and the same thing, the same event. God's intentions were good. The human intentions were evil. Same event. It's how you see. We tend to see how the human, uh, uh, the, the, the human rule works, and God is saying, no, I got it. 
when the brothers wanted to kill this dreamer so that their dream would not come true, he was, they were able to do what they thought they could do, and yet God sovereignly makes sure that Joseph is at a place, and eventually the brothers do end up falling at his feet. Same event, but God is sovereign in his faithfulness. God who promises is able to keep irrespective of what the turn of events are or what humans would ever want to do. So what do I learn in times like this? That God's sovereignty cannot be sabotaged. Whatever it is that the events are happening, don't be hopeless about it because your God rules. He is sovereign. His sovereignty cannot be sabotaged. It says, I will trust it to sustain, to strengthen, and to bring to me to the place that God has purposed and planned uh, for me and what he did. That's something that I can lean on. I can join with the psalmist and say in Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is on my side. Sovereignty of God in his faithfulness tells me that God will sustain me. What a God we have. But I want to take you to another uh, situation. This is where Peter and John have just been uh, uh, warned by the Sanhedrin to say, do not preach in the name of Jesus. And they're sent back and church begins to pray for courage because it's getting more and more difficult to stand for the name of Jesus. And in their prayer, they bring up two things. In verses, chapter 4, verse 27, uh, 26 and 27 and 28, 26 and 27 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and uh, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I want us to understand this idea of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. We don't understand how that works. How can God still be sovereign and yet humans can, uh, can do their free will choice? This, 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 is, this is the divine tension that we read in God's word and yet the beauty of it is that whatever man does will never thwart, never sabotage God's sovereignty. He will do what he has promised. And therefore, even though I don't fully understand the why of his sovereignty, I can trust him with my life because he's a sovereign God. He is worthy of my trust. He's worthy of my trust. And so what do I learn out here? Is that when I try to understand God's sovereign grace and faithfulness, I see that on full display at the cross. If you read through the prayer, you will understand this, that these men, Pilate, Herod, 
the Gentiles and the Jews, they took your anointed one and they thought they can do with him as they pleased him, put him on the cross and to, for him to die. He was made to look weak. He was made to, uh, to be put to death. The Jews would never fully understand that kind of a Messiah. And yet God is saying that is determined because in, it's in the suffering of the Messiah that we would be saved. It's in the suffering of the Messiah that he will be shown as the strong one, that in the death of the Messiah, death will be put to death and the devil would be destroyed in suffering. The idea of the suffering Messiah is the image that I get when I go through a trying time because I see in God one who understands what suffering is, who has taken the eternal suffering upon himself so that I don't have to eternally suffer and yet allows for a form of suffering, light affliction in this world. I don't know why, but I'm thankful he is in control. Therefore, I can confidently say that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for him. It's God who causes us to work all things together. It is not all things working together for its own good. It's not karma that's happening. It is not the transactional God that we worship. It is not tit for tat that is happening. It is a God who says, I'm the sovereign one. It doesn't matter what it feels like the world's going to, but I want to tell you that I will fulfill the purposes and the plans that I have for you. And the journey that you might take might be painful. It might be through roughs and, and, uh, uh, and through thickets, through thorns and thistles. But God's sovereignty is something that we can trust. And we can rest entirely. There is a, there's a story I read about uh, a 15-year-old who lost her very close friend. And so she tells her father, I don't think I want God. He could have saved my friend from dying. He could have heard my prayer. I was talking to our dear sister this morning uh, whose mother passed away. It was so beautiful to hear her stronger in faith in spite of the challenges from her husband and from the rest of the family. And, and uh, I, I began to realize that there are two kind of responses when suffering happens. But this particular instance when the daughter tells this to the father saying that I don't want this God, I hate this God because he didn't listen to my prayer. He said, can I ask you two questions? Would you want a God who is a genie in the Aladdin's lamp? That you rub and the genie answers whatever you ask. Whoever holds the lamp, the prayer would be answered. Would you want that kind of a God? 
Because if that's the kind of God you want, then you are God because you are causing that God to do what you want to do. You are God because you think you know better than anything else and your prayer therefore must be answered. You see, we have understood that prayer, answer to prayer is the way I have answered. Our rest has been in the fact that the way God answers must be the way I asked. But when God replies and answers through his sovereignty, we back off because we think that God didn't answer, but because you think you need to be in control, you want to be the one who is having the Aladdin slam, God is saying, I will not be that God to you. I'm a sovereign God. And so the second question he asks is, would you want a God of the Bible, a God who suffered on your behalf, God who knows what it means to suffer, that when you suffer, he knows what you're going through and he grieves with you because what sin has done to you and that he allows for the suffering to, so that the conformity to the Son can be happening, that the perfection can be yours in Christ Jesus, that through suffering we would be brought to a place where we can fully appreciate who God is. We want a God who has lost his son. When you lose something, turn to the cross. We have a God who gave his son. But he, he received the son back alive. He brought his son back alive and that's the hope that we have this morning. We don't have a God who's just given up and lost everything and now is left with nothing. But he is a God who has got everything in having given. And so as you give up for yourself to God, I want to enjoy you, my brothers and sisters, that you will receive all things in Christ Jesus because you have been blessed above all things. There is nothing that God keeps for himself, he who gave his son to us. Why would he preserve for himself the little tiniest comforts that we so seek? Will we turn to the sovereignty of Christ? And we say, oh God, your will be done. Because you are the omniscient one. You are the omnipotent God. You are the good God. Because I trust you. Your sovereign grace and sovereign faithfulness is, is all that I need. Because you're also a benevolent God. You can do what you want. And you will do what is good. And so I trust your sovereignty. Will we do that? Or will we claim for ourselves little gods who will reply and answer to our whims and fancies? Or will we bend our knees to the sovereign God who knows and does majestically? May his name be glorified. Father God, we want to thank you for who you are. We, want to re we don't want to reduce you, Lord, with the imaginations of our heart and our mind. We want to come to a God who is almighty, who is sovereign, who is powerful, who is seated on the throne. The throne would never perish and never budge. He is seated. There, see, there stands a throne in heaven and one seated upon it. And to him we come with all praise, all praise, all majesty, all glory. We, we bring, O oh God, may it be acceptable to you, O oh God, because we have come in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.